All right, welcome to another episode of Musings on Life and Medicine. My name is Andrew, and I'm the host of this podcast, the host of this publication, depending on if you're listening or reading to this. But, you know, I'm really, really excited for today's episode. And, you know, you may not know because I've only shared this with a few people, but over the last five years, I've been working to answer a question that most of us have struggled with at some point in time. And that question is, how do we live a life that we love that fulfills us? And that's tough. That's hard, right? And in the last six months, I've been working to put kind of all of these thoughts into one cohesive document that will one day become a book. Now, although many of the concepts that I'm writing about apply to any human in any profession, there are really some distinct nuances that I'm going to be highlighting as I work through this that can only be understood by those of you who are working in medicine. And my perspective behind all of these thoughts is really a byproduct of three major life events that have happened. Number one, practicing medicine as a physician assistant. Number two, starting, growing, and managing MedGeeks, which is a medical education company for the last decade of my life. And number three, experiencing the healthcare system through the lens of a patient as we look for answers to help my daughter. And, you know, as you may know, on March 16th, 2022, our daughter, Chloe, was admitted for thrombocytopenia with a platelet count of 17,000. Now, as a father, much of my worry for her health really came before she was born. During the pregnancy, you know, I often wondered if she was going to be born with an illness or a defect that we missed during our routine prenatal workup. And even though, logically, I know that disease can really strike at any age, for some reason, as a father, I believe that once she was born, we were in the clear. And then seemingly out of nowhere, we were hit with this hematologic problem. At the moment, I believe that this was nothing more than something acute, something that would be diagnosed and treated during our hospital stay, and that afterwards, we would be well on our way to just living our life as usual once we were discharged. But so far, not the case. And you know, I remember going to get breakfast for Liz, my wife and myself, after waking up from our first overnight stay. I remember leaving the room, walking towards the elevator, looking to my right, where I noticed a room with glass walls, and this room was a dedicated playroom. As I looked further and observed more, I saw that this room had video games, it had board games, and it really had all types of entertainment. And I instantly realized that this playroom was for children undergoing chemotherapy. And as I saw the children playing, I felt this immense feeling of gratitude that fell over me. It was a reminder that things could always be worse. And in fact, things are worse for many others. In fact, things are worse for the very children in this room. It's been 11 months since that day. And I still think about that room and how we were only a few doors away. And, you know, whenever I start to kind of get into my own head, this memory helps really to put things into perspective. Now, we were admitted, like I said, with the platelet counts of 17,000, dropped to 7,000 during our stay. And we gave Chloe a dose of IVIG. After the IVIG, we all celebrated because her platelet count increased to 41,000 after just a few short hours. Our physician reassured us that this was nothing more than immune thrombocytopenia and that we should be good to go. And like I said, it's been 11 months since that day and Chloe has been refractory to four medications and her platelet count continues to be under 10,000, although I should say that she is stable and she has very minimal bleeding symptoms. But it really wasn't until eight months into her diagnosis that I started to really understand 
what it meant to be a patient in our current healthcare system. On November 7th, 2022, I experienced the inefficiencies that often result in subpar care and burnout. For five years, I've been looking to solve this problem of patient care and burnout. But it was when I had my own experience as a patient that I've come to see how narrow this focus of mine has truly been. And look, don't get me wrong, I, like I always knew that bedside manner, communication, patient rapport was crucial to every visit. But I never had to experience what that looked like from the other side of this looking glass. And for those of you who are in practice, look, always remember patients are people that are not just a set of labs. And I know it's hard, but you have to remember that their lives continue even after they leave your office. Clinicians are often focused on morbidity, mortality, that they often forget what the patients go through in between each visit. And look, in all fairness, I know, I understand. It's not something that's focused on during training. And to be frank, it would be impossible, at least on an emotional level, for you to truly empathize with every single patient. But there has to be something in between because, you know, typical concerns for a patient can turn into worst case scenarios as they go down the rabbit hole. Every patient wants to know that their clinician is competent and compassionate. Now, how much of each thing or how much of of each of these traits really depends on the type of visit, why you're there to begin with. For example, if my father were to collapse due to VFib, I would want a competent clinician who can think on their feet and, you know, ultimately just bring my father back. And because of these time constraints, there wouldn't be any time to show how much they care. And I really wouldn't put as much emphasis or stock on that specific thing from a patient perspective. On the other hand, if I'm going to a provider for a chronic condition then that has gone undiagnosed for eight months, then I'm really going to be focused on this empathy and this compassion, and it's going to play a much more significant role than it would have otherwise played. And it's hard. I understand it's hard to be compassionate when you're overworked. It's hard to think through an unusual case presentation when you have to see patient after patient. And it's hard to think outside the box when you burn out. It's much easier to follow a standardized algorithm that will work for 95% of patients. And I truly understand how hard it is to practice medicine. I also understand how important it is for patients to receive the proper care that they deserve. And we live in this dichotomy where we put patients first or profits first. And the truth is they're both critical because look, without profit, the hospital goes bankrupt and they can't continue to help patients. But on the other side of the coin, there's no point in a hospital even existing if it's not improving the patient's lives. Now, I believe that it is possible to create this ecosystem that fosters creativity and advancement in medicine. I believe it's possible to create this thing that establishes a schedule that is individualized to the clinician so that they can do their best work to create something that delivers outstanding personalized patient care that does change lives. And then at the same token, this ecosystem that creates profits for the hospital so that they can reinvest that money into improving the entire system. Otherwise, mistakes will continue to happen. And all of these mistakes are at the expense of a human being, of a human life. Like this is a big deal. And I found in 2015, the Institute of Medicine published a report. This report says about 5% of adults who seek outpatient care annually suffer 
a delayed or a wrong diagnosis. Postmortem research suggests that diagnostic errors are implicated in one out of every 10 patient deaths. Not every death is scrutinized, however, so the findings can't be generalized to all hospital patients. They also found that chart reviews indicate that diagnostic errors account for up to 17% of hospital adverse events. And then finally, diagnostic errors are the principal cause of paid malpractice claims that are almost twice as likely to end in a patient death than claims for other medical mishaps. They also represent the biggest share of total payments. That's a lot to take in. And to be clear, errors happen because of a system failure. There is not one thing to blame. And in its simplest form, we have three core groups of people who are involved in care. We have your clinical staff, which includes people like the physician, physician assistant, nurse practitioner, registered nurse, etc. A lot of titles. Non-clinical staff, people like hospital executives, receptionists, medical billers, etc., lots of non-clinical staff. And then we have the patient, but it's not just the patient. We have the patient, we have the patient's parents, the spouse, children, etc. And each of these groups has a subgroup, and each subgroup has various professions. And every profession within each group has a unique set of goals. And if these goals do not align with everyone else's goals, then we have chaos, resentments, and burnouts. And for a person to even have a set of goals, number one, they have to be aware of the goal, learn how to become aware of the goal. And number two, they have to have an environment that fosters and encourages them to even reach their goals. And then to even have these goals align, there has to be proper communication between each group and each subgroup. This is a very complex problem to solve. And I kind of liken this to having 100 families, each family being made up of three generations, all living under one roof. And each family is trying to accomplish one singular unifying goal. And thinking about it this way really puts things into perspective because, I mean, how hard is that? How hard is it for your mother-in-law to align with yourself or with your grandmother to align with your father? And in the same token, I wouldn't treat my dad the same way I would treat my grandmother. So why is it okay to group every clinician and treat them all the same? Why do we manage every patient the same? And maybe on the surface, it seems easier logistically, at least in theory. But in the real world, we all are aware that this theory falls apart because we live it every single day. And so this book that I'm writing allows me to number one, write down and organize my thoughts. And in doing so, I hope that it really sparks the necessary conversations with the right people to create this change that we desperately need. And that said, look, it's much easier to change an individual or at least empower an individual than it is to change an entire system. And for this reason, the first half of the book is going to be focused on the clinician. What can the clinician do tomorrow to start living the life that fulfills them, to start living a life they love, to not dread having to go to work. Because look, we do have more control than we give ourselves credit for. We don't have all of the control for every single uh, variable that happens within the system, but there are things that we can take control of. And so these chapters are going to be published for free on Substack. 
or the podcast if you're listening to the podcast because I want to share these ideas with as many people as possible. And next week, I'm going to publish or start publishing the first installment in this series. And if this is something that you resonate with, then I have a major favor to ask you. Number one, if you're listening to the podcast, do me a big favor and leave an honest rating, leave an honest review, because this really helps the algorithm spread this message to more people. Then share the post, share this podcast with a colleague, with a friend, so that they can be part of the conversation too. And look, remember, I'm going to end with this. If you don't decide where you want to go, someone else will surely make that decision for you. Thanks so much, and I can't wait to start this series. Thank you so much for listening, for reading musings on life and medicine. My name is Andrew, and we will talk soon.